Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. We jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday, and in this one, we'll look back at some of our favorite stories and most memorable moments. In September, we officially hit our seven-year anniversary. And don't be fooled that it says we're on episode 428 because I didn't label interviews as their own episode until just recently. So I've counted over 1,000 podcasts in total. I want to begin with what I believe is one of the most remarkable stories in Houston sports history. It involves original Colt 45 and Astro Bob Aspermani. Let's fire up the time machine, and you're going to hear me set up Aspro the Astro with the story. I caught up with him in one of the Minute Maid suites. I want you to tell the story that I think is the greatest baseball story ever. Try to set it up a little bit, and then I'll let you pick it up. But nine-year-old Bill Bradley from Arkansas, nine-year-old kid who was a big baseball fan, he comes to Houston because he had lost his sight. Lightning had hit and I believe a water fountain that he was drinking at. And so he lost his sight. He comes to Houston, and he's in the hospital. And then can you pick up the story from there? An incredible feeling. He was an Astro, a Cole 45 fan at the time, and I was his favorite player. So the family called the ballpark and said, Bobby, would you sign all of these autographs for Billy? I said, oh, sir, where is Billy? They told me he's in the hospital. So I visited him in the hospital. I took him a glove and a ball and a little bat. And then we start the relationship that way. And this kid was all bandaged up. It's incredible. With a big smile on her face when I walked in. And as we were talking for about 10 minutes, and after I said, Billy, I got to go now, go to the stadium. He says, Bobby, would you hit me a home run? I said, I hesitated. I said, Billy, I'm not a home run hitter, but I'll give you my best, best effort. Last of the ninth inning, he has his little transistor radio in the hospital. I hit the game-winning home run. Now everybody's picking it up. Gene Elson's, and they're all talking about the Bill Bradley story of blind faith. He goes in to operate one eye at a time the following week. That lasted about six, eight weeks. He comes back in town, and now I take him to family to lunch, and he says, Bobby, would you hit me a home run? I said, Billy, you're really pushing your luck, Billy. <laughs> would you accept a couple of base hits? And he started laughing. I said, Billy, I'm going to hit a home run for you. You have inspired me incredible. This is hard to believe, but the last of the 10th inning, 2-2, I hit a grand slam home run for him. And the story continues on. He comes back the following year after being operated on the second eye, and we did the same thing. The family take everybody to lunch, and we were talking about everything, how fortunate we are. And again, he asked me, Bobby, would you hit a home run I can see? I said, Billy, I'm getting a lot of home run, a lot of help. I said, divine intervention is, is really helping, such as Bob Astromani hitting these home runs. Last of the first inning, I hit another Grand Slam home run for him. And he's in the stands, and everybody's just going absolutely crazy. And I, we got retrieved the ball, and I gave Billy the ball. And the overall game was stopped for four or five minutes just for everybody to really recognize this young boy. And then the story goes on two years later, and we're corresponding pretty regularly on where he is going to school. He's now 12 years old, and he pitched a seven-inning no-hit game for me. And each time I hit a home run, Gene Nelson would say, this one's for you, Billy, this one's for you. And in the Arkansas paper, this one's for you, Bobby, when a kid pitched a no-hit game. It's the most incredible story. And there's so much to it, the feelings that was 
that you come up with. And then later on, you had something happen to you with your eyes, and you almost lost your vision, and then you guys got reconnected again, didn't you? That's right. All the things I told this young kid at the time, 12, 14 years later, I was charging a battery, and the individual cap hit me in the right eye, and I went through lots of procedures, and, and Billy's there for me, and we talked about his experience, and here we are 12, 14 years later with just the right eye going through all I've, I went through. So it was, it was this, the whole scenario of how it all began and ended, and thank God we're all fortunate enough everything is fine. To me, it seems like your life has almost been like a movie. Do you feel like that? Does it feel as magical to you as it, as it does from the outside? You know why there's such a special feeling? Because this blind fate story is recognized all over the country. I, I get more autograph seekers today, more than when I played, because they recognize the story. They look at all the statistics. They look at all the grand slams and everything. And it's incredible how they respond to it. There's such a sensitivity in what they ask for. And it makes you, it makes you feel very special. Do you still keep in touch with Billy? I, I heard he was living in Memphis was the last thing I read, I think. Yes, he was. But we were, we were, I was very, I'm very active with the Houston Eye Associates here. And we had a big function. They honored myself and my wife. And uh, we went through the whole scenario telling the blind fate story in front of 400 people. And as I finished the story, I said, that kid that I hit the home runs for, and he pitched the note in, is sitting right there. There wasn't a dry eye in the place when that happened. Billy got up and spoke, and the place just went absolutely crazy. That was Bob Aspermani, who, remember, only hit 60 home runs total in his 13-year career, so making all of those home runs so much more unbelievable. Let's stay with the Astros, and these days we all see how involved Lance McCullers is with giving back to both Houston and the community and helping out wherever he can. Five years ago, when he was just a rookie, I asked him about being involved in service projects at Tampa Jesuit, where he went to high school, and how all of that changed his perspective. Jesuit was an unbelievable all-around experience. I think it gives you a um, different perspective on life, entering Jesuit to leaving. You know, those are kind of the key, year, key years in, in, in people's life going through high school. You find out who you are. You kind of get your identity about yourself. Understanding and realizing that, you know, God puts you in a position to be able to help others and do things for other people is extremely important. And I think, you know, going forward, you had to just kind of have to decide, you know, where, where your heart lies. But when I was at Jesuit, I did a lot of work with um, special needs kids, especially a program called Challenger Baseball, which is actually was set up by our head coach at, at Jesuit. And we would um, go out to the field a couple times, you know, on the weekend and just play baseball with these kids who were, uh, who were handicapped. But I think that's where I almost fell in love with the game all over again because these kids one time a week would go play baseball and you could tell it was just the highlight, highlight, of, their, highlight of their life, really. That was Lance McCullers, who's just the real deal as a human being. Next up, let's go back to one of the real Astro characters in recent years, Colby Rasmus. If you forgot, Rasmus played as a pitcher and first baseman for the Phoenix City National Little League team during the 1999 Little League World Series. Phoenix City won the U.S. championship game before losing in the finals to Osaka, Japan. I asked Colby about the experience. It was wild. It was it was crazy to to put all the work in trying to get there. I mean, being you know 10, 11, 12 years old, I played with the same group of kids since I was probably all you know in the same league 
since we were about four and five years old. We all played together coming up. And to get there, to play against all those different kids from different countries, and it was, it was kind of surreal. It was, like a little, it was like a dream. We just tried to ride it the best we could and have fun. It was a, it was a good trip. We were able to uh, beat Toms River, New Jersey, who the year before we watched them play, and that was a wild thing watching them. And then to get there, it was, it was crazy. We got to go on Good Morning America. Uh, we got to run out on the field with the Yankees. I got to go to the mound with Pettit. Ended up facing him a few times in the big leagues, and I hit a home run off of him a couple years ago. So it's just been a roller coaster ride, man. Baseball's took me a lot of great places. I've been able to do a lot of good things and a lot of cool things. So I'm, you know, I'm happy with uh, how everything's worked out with baseball. It's just it's been a ride. That was the man we referred to as Colby Jack. Rasmus actually hit an impressive 417 in the World Series tournament. Let's move on to an Astro player who was the key guy in their big league World Series run in 2017, Justin Verlander. What's so fascinating about Verlander is that last second deal that brought him to Houston. I spoke to Astro Ball author Ben Ryder, most known for that SI cover predicting the Astros championship. And I asked him about the Justin Verlander deal, specifically the lead up and what happened. Let's pick up my conversation with Ben. The two details that brought the biggest smiles to my face were, number one, the day of the deal. Luno's got to speak to his nephew's little league team, which happened (laughs) to be on the field where they shot the original Bad News Bears. Now, I'm sure the irony isn't lost on you or anybody that the Astros were the Bad News Bears when he took over. (laughs) That's right. And also the Bad News Bears fans will remember that in the sequel, they won the big game in the Astrodome. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's, (laughs) that's pretty cool about it. And then number two which this was straight out of like a 1940s Capra movie, was a scene where Justin Verlander and Kate Upton were racing down the stairs of their Detroit high-rise in their pajamas. How in the world did we get there? Because I love this. Right. Well, you know, as I was writing this chapter, I wasn't thinking about the Bad News Bears so much as the ending sequence of another movie, which is Goodfellas. You remember when Ray Liotta as Henry Hills, like driving around frantically as like helicopters are hovering over him and the music's getting louder and louder. And there's like <laughs> yeah. this, this deep, like bass line going on. That's what I was thinking uh, as I wrote this kind of TikTok of how the Astros got to the place where they had two seconds left for Justin Verlander to sign his waiving of his no trade clause and go to Houston. Cause that's when it happened. It happened at 1159 and 58 seconds Eastern, and the deadline was midnight. So that's how close they came to having this fall through. And, I mean, as we saw what happened next, that's kind of how close that they came to perhaps not having won this championship because it is hard to imagine that they would have uh, if they hadn't made this trade for Verlander. Uh, You know, that's kind of one of these things where you talk to all the principals involved for a long time, uh, specifically Luna and and Verlander and Alavila on the Tigers' side, And you kind of tell this narrative almost minute by minute uh, that really seems to have changed everything. And and the story is that, you know, they've got to get to the Detroit executive that has the paperwork on the no trade clause because they got to sign off. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Avila, Avila, the GM of the Tigers, um, in the eventuality or in the case that uh, they did come to terms with the Astros on a trade, he knew that Verlander had to sign off on it. So he actually, you know, talk about Goodfellas. He had two of his executives stake out 
Verlander's apartment building, just sitting outside in their car with the necessary documents in their hands so that if the trigger was pulled, they could immediately rush it in there, get Verlander's signature. And I think they actually took an iPhone photo of the of the document and sent it into the Major League Baseball offices. And the reason they took the stairs was because they were scared that the elevator wasn't going to work. <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine if like a faulty elevator somewhere in Detroit had scuffled this Justin Verlander trade? That would have been, you know, it, it's really uh, everything had to certainly fall into line to get this to happen. That was Sports Illustrated's Ben Ryder on one of the more dramatic Hail Mary moves in Astros history. Next up is a piece of my chat with Lisa Miloski, who many of you remember covering the Rockets for many years in Houston as both a reporter at Channel 2 and as a studio host for the Rockets telecast. We worked together at Channel 20 back in the day. I apologize for a malfunctioning microphone in this next clip, but I know you'll enjoy her fun memories of both Charles Barkley and, of course, the man himself, Akeem Olajuwon. One of the things I remember is that Dream is Muslim and very conservative. Um, he was in that looking for a wife kind, you know, behind the scenes, he didn't talk about that stuff. But I remember being because we were friends and we had known each other. And he was respect. He was very respectful. I remember walking in once and he was putting on his aftershave, you know, after he got out of the shower, putting dabs on his neck. I said, wow, Dream. That smells so amazing because I could smell it from, I wasn't sitting, I wasn't like right next to him, but I was standing up and he told me it was from a prince in Nigeria. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget that. He was so funny. I said, wow. And then um, when I got the first, the first time that it was announced that I was going to be working for NBC, the national broadcast, he, he said to me, basically what he said was Lisa, you know, much deserved long overdue you know you are great at what you do and and I'm I'm proud of you and excited for you I mean it was like wow you realize that he does he pays attention and and he I hadn't said anything to him but he knew and he found out about it and then another <laughs> Charles Barkley is, is still a friend of mine and he's funny and I love Charles but Charles is Charles and he could be very inappropriate in the locker room meaning just he's loud and brash and just sometimes a little inappropriate um but i understood charles's kind of sense of humor he was like a little kid he was like he's like a 17 year old boy and my sister was in town my sister linda and he knew linda and he said something out loud about hey you know what's your sister doing after the game or you know just something that was inappropriate well dream caught up with me in the vomitory as we're passing some going to, I think dream was going out into the basketball court and he said, Lisa, you should not let Charles disrespect you like that. (laughs) (laughs) I I felt really bad because I thought, Oh, dream. What should I have done? But I said, you know, dream. I know. I said, but I I feel like with Charles, you have to kind of roll with it and just let him be himself. And, and Dream was just didn't want me, didn't want anybody else to to think that it was okay to disrespect me. You got to have a a, a funnier Barkley story. There's got to be something from from Barkley that because you know he was always doing some saying some crazy stuff. I'm sure. And- well, I mean, okay, Charles. The funny. I mean, it, I don't know that it's funny, but the charming thing about Charles is that I was pregnant with Dylan, who's now 18. My first baby. Dylan was born in December. Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1999. And that 
year, Charles was playing for the playing for the Rockets, and, and a girlfriend of mine had a shower. It was a couple's shower, so I told a couple of the guys. I told I told you know Hakeem, but knew knowing he'd never come. And I told Clyde to he, he and his wife were welcome to come. I mean, they're just friends. And I told Charles, I said, "Hey, we're having the shower. Who shows up?" Charles Barkley. He's in a tuxedo because he'd been at another event, but he came and he was hilarious and charming. And there were martinis flowing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I'm not sure that he drank anything. He may have had it before. Well, there was always stories with him in Houston where he'd walk into a bar and buy drinks for everybody. Yeah, And do you know, here's the other thing. He came, he was charming, mixed with everybody. There was an easy crowd, good friends. Um, It was incredible. I'll show you a picture of that later. But of course, then I had Dylan in December and my whole family family was in town. My two sisters, Linda, who he knew, and my sister, Tammy, um, their husbands. And he always had a New Year's party and he was playing for the Rockets. And so he invited all the Rockets people and the staff. And I couldn't go. Obviously, I just had Dylan. and But he said, tell your sisters to come. And Linda and Tammy and their husbands walked in and he, they said he could not have been more charming. Walked out with bottles of Cristal champagne, put it on the counter. I mean, he was just incredibly generous. Um, and another time after, you know, the, the year after that, when I wasn't pregnant again, um, Don and I went to the New Year's party and he was, he's just wonderful. He does. He pays for everything. It's a party that no one has to pay a dime for. And he, the champagne is rolling. There's food. There's dancing. He was just, he's very, very generous. That was American Gladiators host Lisa Miloski, the American Gladiators. That was her talking about the unforgettable Charles Barkley experience. And staying with the unforgettable, who could forget about Oilers defensive coordinator Buddy Ryan and the punch he threw at Oilers offensive coordinator Kevin Gilbride? A couple of years ago, I caught up with Oilers safety Bubba McDowell, who gave us his firsthand account of the story. Do you remember much about the the, the punch? Were you anywhere close to all of that action oh, on the sideline? Yeah, yeah, well, I was very close. I was very close. I was, I was hurt that week. I just got hurt, and I was kind of nursing an injury that that week, and I was supposed to play the next game, so they wanted to sit me out another uh, another week. It all escalated like when. The week that I got hurt, we were going in halftime. It was like a minute something left. We had got the ball back to the offense. And Buddy thinking, you know, he, he really didn't like that offense. You know, chucking Doug, however, whatever he called it. He didn't like it at all. And it was like a minute, probably a minute and 10, something like that. We got the ball back thinking that offense was going, going to uh, sit on the ball, going to halftime. And sure enough, they threw, the, threw an interception like, I mean, like third play of that of that series of, of that first series after we got the ball back. Oh man, he was mad. Sure enough, then we got we went back in there. Boom! That's when I got hurt, tore my knee up, meniscus um, at that point. And then it was like even that week later. You know, it wasn't bad. Like I said, I could have came back the following week, but they wanted to make sure everything was okay, so we was gonna sit out the following week. And sure enough, that game. Exact same situation, you know, but then got the ball back, and sure enough, often turned the ball over again with, with like a minute or left in the game, and oh man, that's that's what, and then Marcus Robinson and the other safety ended up getting hurt, and that's when it hit the fan. And I was standing right there, and, and all of a sudden, I just saw a punch come across, and then all of a sudden, I uh, then right behind there, I saw Curtis Duncan come, you know, trying to break it up, and I'm like, wow. <laughs> Has Buddy Ryan taken a swing at Kevin Gilbride? 
Now that's hard to believe. That's baloney. I mean, it's just hogwash. I mean, uh, Kevin Gilbride shouldn't have to take that. And Buddy Ryan, if he wants to be a head coach, wait till he gets a job somewhere. You're not the head coach of the Houston Oilers. Do your job and you coach your can't side. even justify it under those circumstances. He's a heck of a coach. Just acts like a jerk sometimes. Yeah, Duck had got in. I think, was it Jeffries? Was he also in that? It, 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 he might have been the one that stopped uh, Gilbride from from actually uh, doing some damage because Gilbride was bigger than Buddy, right? He was a little bit bigger. Oh, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely was, yeah. I, I think if Haywood had to jump in there, because I remember, if I remember correctly, I, I know when Curtis first jumped in there, Duncan, but he had kind of holding Buddy back a little bit, and that's when Haywood kind of jumped in and grabbed uh, Kevin Gilbride. If you thought Bubba McDowell's story was a little bizarre, oh, brother, we got some crazy stories from the Houston Chronicle's Dale Robertson about the old days covering the Love You Blue Oilers training camp. Well, my two favorites, of course, unfortunately involve uh, firearms. (laughs) Uh, The Oilers, uh, I'm going to say in maybe 79 or 80, had a camp picnic, and they had a big nose tackle by the name of Mike Stensrud, who went by the name of Mongo, which, of course, came <laughs> came from Blazing Saddles. And he had a bit of Mongo in him, and uh, one night he did the, maybe perhaps had that one too many lone stars, and all of a sudden Mongo is firing widely in all, wildly in all directions. Players ducking undercover, and actually I won't mention the names in this other incident, but in a Huntsville training camp, uh, uh, one teammate actually pulled a gun on another. I'm going to leave the names out of that, but uh, you, you don't see that stuff anymore, uh, which I think is good, actually. <laughs> well, here's, here, here's a great story. The night before the last day of training camp in 1980, the Oilers had traded Kenny Stabler, uh, traded for Kenny Stabler uh, with the Raiders and sent Dan Pastrini to the Raiders, right? Bum was thinking, uh, you know, you can't beat him, join him. The Raiders were the one team that seemed capable of beating the Steelers back in the day, so... He acquired, and it would subsequently require uh, Dave Casper as well, you know, uh, Hall, of, Hall of Fame tight end. But anyway, so uh, as I think everybody may remember uh, Snake Stabler, but he was he was a bit of a bit of a wild child, uh, as was Pastorini, but kind of in a different way. In fact, my favorite all-time uh, Kenny Stabler's uh, quote was, "About the only thing I really like to do is play football and drive around in my pickup truck sipping whiskey out of a paper cup." Okay. And he said, and I, I got several ex-wives that never, never figured that out. <laughs> so that's Kenny Stabler. Anyway, so there was, a, there was a nightclub there called Friends. And, well, Snake made a lot of friends at Friends. And I recall seeing him face down in the parking lot at about 2 in the morning. So I go out to practice the next morning. And I might say at the time, this is probably interesting, that my, my, my bitter, bitter, bitter rival covering the Oilers was my dear, dear friend and colleague today, John McLean. Well, John was, pa- John was packing up to go home and decided to skip the morning practice, went out to practice and noticed that there was no snake stabler on the field anywhere. So afterwards, I sidled up to Bum. I was the only reporter. Now, think about this. I was the only reporter at that practice. There was no electronic media. John was back in his room. It was just me. And I said, Bum, what's up with Snake? Uh, he's sick. He's a little under the weather. I said, uh, is this the kind of sick that's probably going to cost him a fine? Bum said, Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You always get memorable stories from Dale Robertson, and I'm sure we'll throw back to that long conversation I had with Dale in a future throwback Thursday. But Dale Robertson, you know, with that classic Kenny Stabler story, it made me think of one of the all-time Astros characters. Let's listen to broadcasting legend Bill Brown on what he remembers 
about one Casey Candell. Uh, one time we were in Montreal and we landed there about uh, two or three in the morning. We were waiting uh, at the luggage carousel for the bags to come down the chute. And we had this uh, tradition, if you will, of uh, everybody betting a dollar to as we're standing around, you know, for 20, 30 minutes. Pretty boring stuff at two or three in the morning. And so whose suitcase is going to be first down the chute? And that would be the winner of the all the money that was collected. A dollar from everybody. So we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's taking an inordinate amount of time for anything to come down this chute. And the first thing down the chute is Casey Candell. <laughs> <laughs> and another thing he did was uh, one time, now this is back, uh, you know, before the rules were more stringent on charter flights. Uh, as far as security and what have you. So Casey somehow had uh, sequestered himself up in, in first class with the manager and coaches. And the plane is taking off, and it's at about a 45-degree angle. And he has uh, procured a piece of cardboard or something slick that he's sitting on. And he just lets it fly when this plane is in, in full ascent. He comes sliding down the aisle all the way to the back of the plane. And it was like a downhill, you know, a bobsled or something like that. It was pretty funny stuff. <laughs> Gotta love Casey Candell, whose mother and aunt, remember, played for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which you know best because they were depicted in the movie A League of Their Own. Let's stay on memorable baseball stories and move to my conversation with Houston Buffs' Larry Miggins. The Buffs are the old double-A team in Houston, but Larry did a cup of coffee in the majors, 43 games to be exact, for the St. Louis Cardinals. A couple of years ago, I spoke to Larry, who's now 94 years old, about the first of his two major league home runs and how it related to baseball's most storied play-by-play voice. You're now a longtime Houstonian, but you grew up in the Bronx, New York, and you were the valedictorian at Fordham Prep. One of your high school classmates at Fordham Prep was Vince Scully. You and him both had big dreams at that time. Tell us that story. Well, we had an assembly when I was a senior at Fordham Prep. All the school got together in the assembly hall, and he was sitting right behind me. So anyway, he put his arms on my shoulder, and he said, Larry, someday you're going to be in the big leagues. And the first time you hit a home run, I'll be the announcer and tell the world about it. Well, I laughed about it, and I never thought of it much after that. But sure enough, 1952, this is nine years later, I was playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. wasn't playing regular. How could I? When I had two Hall of Famers playing with the two outfield posts, there was only one spot open, and everybody in the, in the, in the organization was vying for that one spot. So I played a little bit, uh, and uh, but I got up against Preacher O. I think Eddie Sankey, the manager, figured this is Miggins' hometown. He must have all his friends and relatives there. He'll be up for this game. Let me put him in and see what happens. So they put me in, and sure enough, I hit one. I think it was the second time up against Preacher over the man on. Scully only had one or two innings to broadcast for Red Barber in those days because he was just starting out. But he had that inning, and uh, he talked about this story and related to all the people in New York. And I heard about it from other people. It was great. That was Larry Miggins, who played against Jackie Robinson in his first professional game with the Dodgers organization. Go back to our Jackie Robinson tribute to hear that story. 
So how about we stay with guys who played on the same field with Jackie Robinson? One of my all-time favorite shows was with Randy Handsome Ransom Jackson, who played on the Dodgers in the mid-50s and was part of their 56 World Series team. My old co-host, R.G. Seal, led him into this crazy what-if about the Don Larson perfect game. You were on the uh, Brooklyn bitch the day that Don Larson threw the perfect game in the 56th World Series. And you even describe in the book just how unusual that was with all the great pitchers in the series that, that Don Larson would even throw the, the perfect game. But with two outs in the ninth, your manager was either going to pinch hit with you or Del Mitchell. Can you pick up the story from there? Don Larson was not a great pitcher. I mean, he's a good pitcher, but uh, we could not believe that uh, this was going on. And you, you you realize this about the sixth inning. He had a perfect game, and you, you just shake it off because you know he's not going to. Somebody's going to get a hit, a blue pit or something. But then you got to get into the ninth, and, you know, you get, you get sweaty, not because of the perfect game, but you, but I think primarily because you're going to lose a game in the World Series. It's just one of those days, and it was just his day. I figured that I, I would not be the – Probably not me the pinch hitter because uh, Dale Mitchell was a left-hander. But you never know. Sometimes uh, managers change it around. I had a bat in my hand, but uh, I never did get to swing it. Of course, if, if I had gotten up there, that would just ruin the, wor- the World Series, ruin the perfect game. That would have been a shame. <laughs> <laughs> you would have messed the whole thing up. Mitchell. Yeah, I would have. <laughs> Mitchell struck out. 119 times in 4,358 plate appearances, which is unbelievable. So he was the hardest guy to strike out. And then Larson strikes him out to end the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it just happened. <laughs> but I was there. I can say that. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. This strikes ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. Also, Yogi was catching that game, and every baseball fan remembers Yogi jumping into Larson's arms after the last oh, pitch. Yeah. Tell the story about Yogi and the butterfly. You tell that one in the book. Oh, yeah. We were playing an exhibition game in Phoenix. I was the next hitter, whoever it was. He had a fly ball down the right field line, and the right fielder caught it. And Yogi threw off his mask and started running down the third base line, you know, opposite sides. And I walked up to the plate, and he was just giggling. And I said, Yogi, what happened? He said, well, I was looking for the ball, and I looked up there, and I thought I saw it, but it turned out to be a butterfly. So he was chasing a butterfly down third baseline where the ball was going out in right field. <laughs> and that's that's the story between me and Yogi. Great to get to hear the voice of Randy Jackson, who we lost, unfortunately, just last year at the age of 93. He's also known for hitting the last home run in Brooklyn Dodger history. Well, occasionally we veer slightly from sports, but this was in an interview I couldn't pass up. During the Astros game a few years back, they honored the veterans of D-Day on the field, and I was lucky enough to catch up to Clyde Combs that day at the park. Clyde told me what it was like to be a part of the Normandy invasion. What do you remember from that day? Well, number one, we were surprised. Uh, We were on our way to the Pacific after we had picked up our new PT boat in Bayonne, New Jersey, and we got as far as Miami on the way to Pacific, but they turned us around and and said, you're going to the European theater. So we uh, 
we got over there and landed in Scotland. Uh, we were, went over overseas on the top deck of a, a T2 tanker carrying 100 octane gasoline, but uh, uh, four PT boats on each tanker, and we had 30 boats that went over, and uh, we uh, landed in Scotland and unloaded from the tanker and got down to southern England to our base in southern England on June the 4th. That was just two days before D-Day. Just enough time to take on ammunition and fuel and be ready. So at 0200 on the morning of June the 6th, we left our base and uh, headed for the French coast. And what I remember about that morning at 0200, still in England, was just the constant drone of planes going over. All you could do was hear them. It was the black of night. As daybreak came, why, we found that many of the planes were towing gliders, the glider troops that were going inland and everything. Then we went to the Normandy beach then. Uh, we had these uh, 30, 36 PT boats for a, uh, a line of defense on the western flank of uh, Utah Beach. That was the two American beaches were Utah Beach and Omaha Beach, and then the British had uh, Gold Beach, Juneau Beach, and and then Sword Beach was the Free French and the uh, others. But anyhow, uh, that was our main mission, was to prevent any interference from uh, German uh, E-boats, which were based at Cherbourg, still on the uh, peninsula there and uh, in possible submarines or anything. That was our mission during the during the de-invasion. Did you know enough to be scared about what you were about to do? No, not really. We were there for a purpose, and you're young, and we were just eager, uh, eager to be there, really, to take our part and do what we could. Does it feel to this day like a dream to you that you you were there, or does it seem like something that's very, very, very real to you even even now? Well, after I got out of the service and went back home to Indianapolis, Indiana, well, then I uh, went to college in Michigan. And after the war, it was just a thing of the past. I mean, you went back into civilian life trying to get uh, work and everything. It wasn't even mentioned. I didn't even talk about the war or uh, anything for 25 years afterward. I mean, uh, busy making a, trying, you know, surviving, making a living. But then I went to a reunion of PT boats that, uh, that I saw. There is an organization called PT Boats Incorporated. So I, uh, had been, so I got back into the military world to some degree and started going to reunions. And the older I get, the uh, more I realize that, uh, <laughs> that there are, we, we need to talk about it more. And I uh, and make make the world know that we don't need any more World War Threes or any other wars. And I still speak to various clubs, Rotary Club, and school kids and Boy Scouts. Uh, I give talks to to them on the subject. So now, to answer your question, I I do feel uh, what a privilege it was in retrospect. Uh, number one, to still be here to talk about it and to. Uh, make people aware of the sacrifices that uh, I, I feel that I have a mission to make people aware of what a sacrifice so many people have made, young men and women have made before us. What a privilege to hear a first-hand account of the Normandy invasion 
from an actual eyewitness. And what a privilege we've had to talk to a couple of World Cup winners who played in Houston. One of those was former Houston Dash defender Megan Klingenberg, who shared her experience just weeks later about the World Cup. People don't know you were the last cut, I believe, on the Olympic team in 2012. You've talked a little bit about that. I know the experience of being right there, you're that close. They didn't let you on the bench, so you were watching from the stands. Tell me a little bit about what that experience was like and to come back from that and to, to make this World Cup team and for all of this to now happen to you. Sitting in the stands watching your team win an Olympic gold medal is a big kick in the butt. <laughs> it's something that I never want to do again. I was so proud of them, and I was very happy for them because I've seen how hard they worked, but I also knew how hard I worked. I was there every step of the way with them. And it was great to be able to support them in their goal, and I'm so happy for them. But that's something I wanted to be a part of. And that wasn't something that I was going to let slip through my fingers ever again. What does that moment feel like when you realize you you won the World Cup? It's hard to explain. It's a, it's a mix of emotions because my family's there, and they have been with me through thick and thin. And so being able for that, it, it was their dream as well. So when they're there and able to experience you know, my dream coming true and their dream coming true. It's incredible. You get to, I mean, you feel relief because the whistle blew. You feel excitement. You feel pride for your country, honor. So there's all these different things. You can't necessarily put your finger on it. The moment I think everybody will remember from the United States was the goal by Carly from midfield. That's unusual, I would assume. Have you ever seen anything like that? Have you ever been in a game where that's happened? No, I mean, I've seen that during games on TV. I've seen that during highlights, whatever, but I've never been a part of something like that. And when she scored, it was, you know, one of the one of the best goals I've ever seen. And Carly, amazing throughout the tournament. And then she comes back with the Houston Dash, and she's player of the way. I mean, she's been unbelievable. What is so great about her? What makes her so special? I think Carly, you know, absolutely can take a game and change it with no one else helping her. And that's always been her best attribute. And you can see that during the World Cup, she's able to take people on and kind of change the course of the game just by herself. That was Megan Klingenberg, who was Jeff Van Gundy's old roommate. Remember that story? Well, let's keep it on the soccer field for my next favorite story, favorite moment from the show. And we'll listen back to former Houston Dynamo goalie, Tyler Derrick who's a Houston native and played soccer for the Klein High School Bearcats. When you were at Klein, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if my timeline's right, you would have been there around the same time Randy Bullock was there, who was the kicker for the Texans. Do you remember Randy? Were you, did you know him? And, and did you ever think about kicking on the football team? Because you've got a pretty good leg yourself. Uh, I actually I played club soccer with Randy growing up. He was a year younger than me. And uh, we had a couple classes together, actually. Uh, we had our, um, a science class together. And uh, he was a pretty bright kid, so I'd go over and use it, go over to his house and uh, take his science homework. Not take it, but I'd copy it down and turn it in, and I'd usually get A's in that class because he's a bright kid. <laughs> so there you go. Tyler Derrick admitted to us that he cheated off Texans kicker Randy Bullock. You never know what you might find out on Houston Sports Talk. What you learn over and over is sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, and that brings me to my friend David Basil. We worked together at the NBC in Little Rock many, many moons ago, and Basil's been lucky enough to cross paths with former President Bill Clinton a couple of times. So when he went to the Belmont Stakes to see American Pharaoh become the very first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, guess who Basil runs into? 
We were up on the fourth floor watching uh, watching with some of the other sort of high rollers. We sort of stumbled on this particular area, even though we had media passes. And, you know, he grew up in Hot Springs, and, and uh, he came up and he saw us. And, of course, I, you know, he remembered me when I played for the Razorbacks. So he comes over, and they cordon off an area with just Clinton, myself, and our two buddies from Arkansas. He spends 15 minutes with us, and he recalls his, his mother loving the horse races, going to Oakland and, and laying the $2 bets down. So it was really cool to hear him reflect on – his childhood memories. And then he talked about a, a high school buddy of his that had won $1,100 his senior year, junior and senior year. So he knew how to bet the races. So it was pretty unique that we were sitting up there and all these people, there were probably 500 people trying to get to Clinton. And there he was <laughs> with, with these three hillbillies that nobody knew who they were from Arkansas. We were the only Arkansas media there. Uh, and so that even added to it as well. The fact that uh, President Clinton was the you know, was able to spend some time with us. Of course, he was rooting for American Pharaoh because of the Oakland connection as well. That was Little Rock Sports Radio's David Basil, one of my favorite people I've met in the sports journalism business over my many years. And let's close out with another one of my favorite people, Steve Sparks, the Astros voice. And this is my favorite moment in our show's history. No doubt about it. You know, sometimes the best moments happen purely by accident. And this one is the perfect example. RG and I were on the phone with Steve Sparks three years ago, and he was driving back from his home state of Oklahoma when this happened. You got a song for us, Sparky, to finish things off? Do you, can you give us something? Do I have a song? <laughs> yeah. How about Oklahoma? I just crossed the Oklahoma border. You want to hear Oklahoma? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's hear it. This is the only show tune I knew, despite the fact when I was a player, I had it in my media guide. I love show tunes. I don't even know why I wrote that. No, I, I said I love to whistle show tunes. And that stayed with me. I was even on a couple of baseball cards. But here's the only show tune I know. It's because I'm from the state of Oklahoma. I'll give you a little bit, right? All right. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain and the waving wheat. It sure smells sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oklahoma every night, my honey lemon die. Sit around and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. Oh, you know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. So when we say you, a yippee yo yay, you know you're saying we're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, O K L A H O M A, Oklahoma, okay. All right. That's some great stuff. Was that, was that bad? Was that off too? That was right on the money. That was beautiful. I have a, I think I got a tear in my eye. <laughs> Did you really? Thank you. That means, that means the world to me. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.